Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland. It's Annie here and I'm just introducing a wonderful wee bonus episode. Jenny and myself interviewed author Jennifer Morag-Henderson, who's just released her new book, Daughters of the North. This is a historical biography telling the story of Jean Gordon, who was from the far north of Scotland and lived from 1546 to 1629. So it's a really intriguing time period because it's covering the reign of Mary Queen of Scots, James VI and into the beginning of the rule of Charles I. It was an interview that I really, really enjoyed and I hope you do too because we were looking at the lovely intricate and quite personal details of early modern history as well as some events that had big political and economic swings. Just a quick content warning that this episode does contain some sensitive material, so some listeners may want to skip this one. There is discussion of murder, death, and there's a mention of a rape, so listener discretion is advised. However, though some of this history is really challenging, I really hope that listeners can hear how much I was absolutely enthralled with talking to Jennifer. So I'm just going to let this interview play. Okay, so I am Jennifer Morag-Henderson and I'm a writer. My second book, Daughters of the North, is just about to be published. Uh, my first book was a biography of the Inverness writer Josephine Tay, and I've also written quite a lot of other shorter things. And my main interests are kind of history and biography, and especially the history of the north of Scotland, where I'm based. Fantastic. And so with your first book on Josephine Tay, obviously a Scottish woman, and your new book coming out, which is looking at Jean Gordon and Mary, Queen of Scots, two more Scottish women, do you find yourself really drawn towards women's histories? Yeah, I guess there's a little bit of that. I think what I'm really interested in is kind of finding out the history of where I live. And then I do get kind of drawn towards maybe finding out more about what a woman like myself could have done in the 1920s, like Josephine Tay, or much further back in the 16th century, like Jean Gordon. Brilliant. And so, yeah, so you say you were looking at the 1920s, and but now you've kind of gone back to early modern Scotland. So was that on purpose or did you find a thread and just keep pulling on it? Um, I've always been interested in kind of Mary Queen of Scots era. That's something that I've I'm just fascinated by that, that time period ever since school. But I do think like both the books have kind of got, they're, they're both times of great change. Josephine Tay's either there's the First World War and the Second World War, and society really shifts and changes at that time. And Jean Gordon and Mary Queen of Scots, it's the time of the Reformation, the New World is opening up, this society is just shifting and changing, and particularly in the far north and the highlands where, where Jean Gordon is based, everything is changing from the power of the clans is, is starting to diminish and the power of the earls is starting to grow. So I, I really like the, the kind of interaction between P- 
people's personal choices and then the times that they live in and what they can do personally, but then what they're forced to do by society. So I find those time periods of change really interesting. Ah, fantastic. So we mentioned Jean Gordon a little bit already, but for anyone who's listening that isn't so up to date on Jean Gordon, uh, she is the subject of your new book, uh, your new biography, Daughters of the North. Could just give us a bit of an introduction to her? Who was she? And yeah, what did you find while writing about her? Yeah, so she's she's maybe not a, a name that everyone's heard of, but I think everyone's familiar with Mary Queen of Scots. And I think maybe kind of the story of Mary's life and she comes to Scotland, she remarries Darnley, and then there's Darnley's mysterious death. And then she ultimately ends up marrying the Earl of Bothwell. And this kind of ultimately leads to her downfall. Jean Gordon was Bothwell's first wife. Bothwell actually has to divorce Jean, or Jean divorces Bothwell, in order for Bothwell to marry Mary Queen of Scots. So she's right in the heart of that action. She's right in the middle of everything that's going on. Jean is Bothwell's alibi for the night of Darnley's murder. So she is right there. She knows exactly what's going on. And she's involved in so many of the the major events of the time. Since you've just mentioned Mary, Queen of Scots, I think a lot of people are fascinated by her reign because it signifies an unexpected time of very powerful women. What do you think makes Mary's Queen of Scots' life and reign a really great background for looking at women's histories? Yeah, I mean, there's Mary in Scotland and there's Elizabeth in England, and they're both extremely well-educated, intelligent women with huge amounts of power. And then across Europe as well, there are people like Catherine de' Medici, Mary, Queen of Scots' mother-in-law, and her interactions with, with them as well. And it was just, it was a real high point for women's education. I talk about this in the book, how Jean Gordon, she's extremely well educated. She would have spoken Scots. She possibly spoke Gaelic. She seems to have had a working knowledge of Latin as well. Possibly French too, because French is the language of the court, because Mary Queen of Scots speaks French. It's a real high point for women's education. And women have a lot more power in Scotland than people sometimes realise. They are able to control things and they are. Jean Gordon is in charge. When we look at her later life when she is Countess of Sutherland, any kind of analysis of the Earls of Sutherland that ignores Jean's contribution is flawed because she is essentially in charge during the life of her husband and then during the minority of her son and then during the minority of her grandson. So for three generations, she is one of the controlling people in the Sutherland Estates. And when you're looking at the history, or the written history that we have, that people have contributed to, do you find that she is ignored a lot? I think her contribution is acknowledged. There are loads of secondary sources that I looked at. I mean, Jean Gordon, she's right there. She's in the action and people do talk about her. But I think because, partly because she lived so long, people don't make the connections that it's the same woman still in charge and still involved in so many different things. I mean, she actually lives through the reign of Mary, Queen of Scots, James VI, and then on into Charles I. And people don't tend to study those three reigns all together and think, well, that's actually just one person's life. And I find that that approach to history through biography can be really interesting for finding new, new connections. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so when you are researching this and trying to find these connections, what's your what's your method? We we personally love archives, but how do you go around finding these dots to connect? Yeah, so there are actually several letters from Jean Gordon in archives. So I was down in the National Library of Scotland in Edinburgh and you can actually read her handwriting. I was unfolding letters that she had folded in the 16th century and then you're reading her handwriting. There's nothing as personal as someone's handwriting. It's just, it was incredible to read that. And the letters are, I mean, people put pen to paper for important things in those days. So the letters are, are very much kind of practical day-to-day -day concerns of the estate. But there's this, this really fascinating crossover between her personal life and political things that are happening because when she's talking about her son, she's talking about someone whose actions affect the lives of people across a huge part of the north of Scotland. So the letters can be simultaneously about her grandson being born but then that grandson is going to go on to have so much power in the north. So it, they were these incredible letters to look at. Oh, that's great. And did you did you visit any sites while you were researching? Did you do a tour of the important places? Yes, I have. I have dragged my family around all the ruined castles in the in the north and northeast. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, the, one of the main sites associated with Jean Gordon is because she becomes Countess of Sutherland is Dunrobin Castle. And Dunrobin Castle, as we know it today, is is not what Jean would have known. I mean, the big kind of Versailles-inspired, the gardens and the white turrets, that's not what she would have known. But the castle that she knew is still there. It's kind of within the middle. So I think there's one part of the tour of Dunrobin where you can kind of peer out a window and see the old, the old keep, the old castle that, that Jean would have known. I actually, Dunrobin were really helpful. The castle manager there was really helpful and I, I actually got into the castle out of hours, particularly to look at the portraits that they hold because they have a portrait of Jean as an old woman, an amazing portrait of her husband um, wearing armour and portraits of two of her sons as well, two of her youngest and second youngest son, Robert and Alexander. It was amazing. The portraits are so revealing, I think, of, of what the people were like. And we're really, really lucky. There's not, there's not lots of women who you get portraits of from early modern Scotland. And we have two pictures of Jean. One as a young woman at the time of her first marriage to the Earl of Bothwell. And then one as an older woman as Countess of Sutherland. And to see the difference between those two pictures and to see how this woman has changed throughout her life that was really special to see. Yeah, I'll have to, I love going up there. It's one of my favourite places to take like family members or I think it's a wonderful example of yeah, Highland Castle purely because it's just, it's it's huge. But also the Falcon Show is great. I love the falconry display, yes. <laughs> love it. <laughs> but I'll definitely have to keep an eye out for the portraits next time I'm up. Yeah, Jean is, her portrait is placed on the wall next to her son, Robert, who was the the tutor of Sutherland, Robert Gordon. Okay. Excellent. So when you were doing your research, do you felt like you had any breakthrough moments? Or did you find anything that you maybe weren't expecting to find? Yeah, I think when I first started research, I was really interested in kind of the action in the first half of the book, Jean's life with Mary, Queen of Scots and, and the big intrigues of the Scottish court. 
But then I gradually became just so fascinated by the developments in the second half of the book and the way that Jean built up her power as Countess of Sutherland, especially the interaction with the clans and how that's so personal for her because her grandson becomes Chief of Mackay. This kind of early modern period is the time when the, the clan's power is starting to decline. So you really see a change in attitudes, um, but it's so personal. Jean's son writes about what he thinks about the clans and what he thinks about Gaelic, but he's writing about his sister's son. And that just gives it that element of personal family drama, as well as this wider story of, of Scottish history. So that was fascinating. And also, one of the nice things and one of the things that attracted me to Jean Gordon's story is that she marries three times. When she's first at court with Mary Queen of Scots, she's in love with a man called Alexander Ogilvy, Alex Ogilvy, and they're not allowed to marry, it's not allowed, and she's forced to marry the Earl of Bothwell. But she actually gets to marry the man she loves when she's an old woman. Both of them outlive all the drama of Mary Queen of Scots' court, and they finally get together. And this guy, Alex Ogilvy, that she's in love with, I mean, he's a nobleman, but he's not terribly well known. And it was quite difficult to find information about him. And I found in the archives, I eventually managed to find this really interesting book that he put together. And it's a herbal. So it's, it's quite an unusual document. It's all handwritten and it's all about the herbs and plants that he grew in his garden at his castle site in, in the northeast. But it's the real evidence of a kind of scholarly mind and a kind of interested open mind of a gentleman gardener of the time. And it's such an unusual document because at that time people were, they did only write things down if they were important. So they tend to be, you know, like legal documents, letters are all about practical things. But this little herbal is full of doodles. It's full of pictures and there's a little picture, a hand-drawn picture on the front of a man standing in his garden. And there's absolutely no way to prove this, but I like to think that that is Alex Ogilvie in his garden. And finding that in the National Library in Edinburgh, that was just, again, it's looking at, at people's handwriting, it's so personal, but then a drawing as well. That's very unusual to find in these sort of documents. That just sounds like such a beautiful, beautiful document. In archive school, one of the first things we have to do is to speak about all of the different characteristics of archive material. And everyone always brings up just magic, <laughs> like the almost indescribable feeling you get when you come across something that feels so unique and really gives you a, a very special connection with the past. It sounds like you've come across that a few times in the research. Yeah, definitely. I loved reading through all the letters and they're so full of personality. I mean, there's Jean's letters, her son Robert, he wrote a lot. He wrote a history of the Earldom of Sutherland, a famous kind of letter of advice to his nephew who he was trying to supervise as he grew up to, to run the Earldom of Sutherland. And Robert has such a strong personality and that really comes through in his letters too. But I also loved... There's a handful of letters written to Robert from his wife, and she's obviously much less used to writing, but her letters are so 
personal and they're all kind of oh the children really miss you and my mother says hello and oh it's such a shame you have to be up in Sutherland because she lived down um, near London most of the time. Again they were so different to all the other letters, really interesting to read. Do you feel like you're getting to know people? For, even though they've been dead hundreds of years, <laughs> it's I, I find whenever I've worked really closely with the collection that it's almost like I'm building a one-sided relationship with these people just through their letters, their diaries. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think you you do have to be a wee bit careful in biography just to make sure that you are still representing the person, that I'm not putting myself in it too much. Mm-hmm. And I think writing about Josephine T. I, I don't think I could have written this without having had the experience of writing about Josephine T. Mm-hmm. And that, that was so different because it was so much closer in time that I do actually know Josephine T's family. So, you know, if I, if I kind of said something and they were like, no, actually, she's not like that. So it kind of brought me back to always trying to show people as they actually were. Brilliant. So Daughters of the North is really refocusing early modern Scotland on the far north of Scotland. Can you tell me what's so special about this place in this time? Yeah, it has really distinct characteristics and I think that it's overlooked. There are particular relations between the clans and the Errols that are specific to the far north of Scotland. They're not the same as the way the clans operate over on the west coast. And I've tried to bring that out in my book and showing particularly the interaction between Jean and her her grandson, who is chief of Mackay. And then just kind of the geography of the area that it is, because we're at a time where originally at the start of Jean's life, the court is in Edinburgh. But then at the end of her life, the court is in London because James VI has moved down to London. And just the sheer distance between the far north of Scotland and London starts to really affect the relationship with the land. Jean grows up in the northeast. Her life is located all around the north and northeast in the far north. And then for her son, he is the same. He grows up in the far north. But then when we get to her grandson, he wants to go to school further south and he wants to go to the court further south. So he ends up not having this deep connection with the land that earlier generations have. And the land becomes more about a place that can supply the money to then support the lifestyle at court. I think it's a really important transition point for the Northern Highlands that we can still see the effects of today, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And it's absolutely fascinating to hear you speak of this because it sets tumbling down events that completely shape the far north of Scotland over the next few hundred years. Can you give us any particularly interesting examples of Jean's relationship with the clans? Were there any kind of little moments or little stories of the history that you think kind of shed light on this relationship? Yeah, I I think it's quite a, a gradual process of change. Jean's daughter marries the chief of Mackay he comes to Dunrobin to live with them and the Errols of Sutherland make an alliance with Mackay clan as part of their kind of ongoing feud with the Errols of Caithness. Yeah, a lot of the second part of the book talks about these kind of relationships. So Jean's grandson, Donald Mackay, 
he gets the by name of Donald of the Tribbles, which gives you a little bit of an indication of, of how his life eventually turns out. But there is a moment where Jean's son Robert, who's by this point living at court down in London with James VI, he invites Donald down to court and Donald kind of travels to London believing that he is Robert's equal. But something happens in London that makes him believe that no, he's never going to be the same as the son of an Errol. He's always going to be a clan chief and that is always going to be different. And it wasn't always different through history and it wasn't even different at the start of his life. But now I think that you can you can read that moment as a real turning point in Donald's life. And he has a bit of a, a meltdown in his private life where he believes that his wife, who is just about to have a baby, he becomes convinced that this baby is not his. So he throws his pregnant wife out of the house like the day before she gives birth or the day after she gives birth and installs instead his mistress who's a very scandalous woman. The mistress then becomes pregnant and this is like a massive family drama for Jean that her grandson is doing this and he's also not writing to her but then he does write to her so so we have these personal family letters where they're trying to explain what they're doing. Quite a gradual process so yeah, there's kind of the overarching themes of the book, but then there are particular dramatic incidents throughout the book, like the poisoning of Jean's husband and the trial of the corpse of Dream's father at the Scottish Parliament. So, yeah, there's kind of overarching themes, but then these dramatic things going on as well. When you say things like poisoning of husband or the trial of the corpse, it almost sounds like fantasy fiction. It almost doesn't sound real. You couldn't make this stuff up. The trial of her father's corpse. The corpse is propped up in a coffin in front of Mary, Queen of Scots. I mean, it really changes your view of Mary, Queen of Scots as well, that she ran the Scottish Parliament with this corpse in front of her because this is quite early on in the story that Jean's father, he is the most powerful man. He's known as the King of the North, but then he has this dramatic downfall and he has to be put on trial for treason. And at that time, if, if you were put on trial for treason, it didn't matter if you were dead. They embalmed his body and brought it to the Scottish Parliament so he could go on trial. Jean was probably there. I mean, Jean and her, her mother was almost certainly there. Her brother was definitely there. But imagine having to watch that. It's, 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 it's so horrific. I mean, it was a violent time. Some of the excesses are extraordinary. You can't really imagine the brutality of it. There's a lot of violence, yeah. But then Jean, as a woman, is involved in the violence in, in slightly different ways. To what degree, when we get these kind of scenes of violence involved, does Jean have any agency over the life and death of others. Yes, definitely, because she is the most powerful woman in the north of Scotland. And if she says something, people are going to listen. And there's an incident quite late on in the book with a woman who is abducted and raped by a group of men and Jean steps in to help. She has to ask for a man to come with her to help. I mean, she, she can't, as a woman, walk in and disarm a group of armed youths. Mm -hmm. But because she is very powerful, she has a large number of retainers that she can call on. 
and then once she says something, people have to listen. She, she has a huge amount of power in her own right. You've already mentioned Dunrobin Castle. Were there any other sites that gave you a unique insight into Jean Gordon's life? A couple of sites I really enjoyed. I really like Darnaway Castle. Darnaway isn't actually usually open to the public either, but I managed to get on a private tour and I just of the, the Great Hall. Darnaway Castle's in Murray and it's this site where Mary Queen of Scots proclaims her half-brother James Stewart publicly proclaims him as the Earl of Murray and this is going to be his new seat. So Darnaway is the Earl of Murray's seat so it's very important for, for that reason. And the Great Hall where this happened is still there and it's this massive huge hammer beam roof with these ancient timbers. The timbers are from like the age of the Vikings. It's a fantastically old roof and it's seen so many events. And the, the famous quote at the time of Mary Queen of Scots was that the hall could hold a thousand armed men standing shoulder to shoulder in this hall. And you can just imagine it. The space is still so evocative. And I, I wanted to see it because it's got a number of paintings in there, including a painting of the Bonnie Earl of Murray, who was murdered by the Earl of Huntley, who is related to Jean. It's a, a later Earl of Huntley than her father, but Jean is very much involved in that story as well, in a, a blood feud that went for generations between the Murrays, the Earl of Huntley and the Earl of Murray. And the current family, the current Earl of Murray and his family, told me the story of this feud whilst standing in front of this picture. And it has these doors that cover it up and then you can open up the doors and they kind of fold backwards because it's a very, very graphic picture of somebody who's been murdered. And then we were getting told the story of this incredible blood feud standing in this hall with these ancient timber beams above us. And that was, that was quite something. And there's, there's other fantastic artefacts in the hall as well. Some of them, they're all quite gruesome, to be honest. There's a, a piece of the Regent Murray's skull, Mary Queen of Scots' half-brother, and there's a piece of his skull in a jar underneath the portrait of him and his wife Agnes. I, I didn't actually know that was there until I saw it, so that, that was an extra bonus thing to see. It must be so surreal looking at these artefacts and speaking to the descendants of these folks at the same time. How important was those family connections to you? I think it's something that you have to think about because this is our history, but essentially Jean's descendants still own Sutherland. They still own the area that she owned. And I mean, obviously the land boundaries have changed. So part of what interests me in studying history is what we can learn from it and then how that makes me think about where we are and how that makes me think about the Highlands. Because one of the big stories of Scottish history is how is land use and who owns the land. And that has to be a part of the story when, you, when you're writing about it. That brings us quite nicely on to my next question, actually. When I was reading the book, one of the parts that I wasn't expecting, but that I really enjoyed, was about salt panning in Sutherland. So for our listeners, would you be able to explain a little bit about salt panning and Jean Gordon's role in this? Yes. 
I'm so glad you like that because I have been trying to convince everyone for ages how interesting salt is. <laughs> and salt is an absolutely fascinating topic. But in early modern Scotland, salt was basically white gold. It was one of the few commodities that people had to buy and you could sell it for cash. This is kind of the period of Jean's life where she has children and her children want to travel. They want to go to the continent. They want to go to university. In order to do that, they're going to need money. And the Sutherland Estates at this time, they get rent, but the rent quite often is in kind, so people will be paying them in food. So she's trying to find a way to exploit the land, basically, and, and make more money. So she knew that there was coal on the land, and she knew how important salt was. I mean, you needed salt to preserve food. Like, that's, that's the main thing to think about is... How are you going to keep your food over winter? You need salt to preserve it. And one of the most important things that you need for salt production, if it's going to be made from seawater, you need access to the sea, which she had, and you need fuel, lots and lots and lots of fuel. So she knew that there was this coal in Barora, right next to the sea. So she has built salt pans, iron salt pans and a salt gurnal, which is where you store the salt, the salt houses down beside the water. And I became so fascinated by researching this. And there is a group called the Brora Salt Pans Research Group who have done incredible archaeology all around Brora and all around the area, excavating the 16th century salt pans. So I've been up there and I've, I've seen the salt pans and the group made a replica salt pan. So they, did, they do kind of demonstrations where they fire up the salt pan and then they make the salt. So I was there the first time that they did that. I've been back again since. They even had the Scottish Salt Symposium, which was a whole weekend of people talking about salt. This is amazing. <laughs> so I went up to this as well. But it, it's so important. I mean, Jean is in charge, yeah, and she's a woman and she's in charge of this. And that is not our image of women in the 16th century. It's also really challenging assumptions about the Northern Highlands because we don't think of it as an industrial area. But the salt, it's an industrial process and the coal mining as well. And coal mining in Brora goes on until the 1970s. So this is a whole different view of the Highlands. And then how the salt is sold as well, it's going down to Southern Scotland. It's also going as far as London. And the products, things like salted fish, they're going over to the continent. It shows how interconnected the Highlands really, really were. The whole process of salt making is, is so interesting. And the, the Brora Salt Pans Research Group, the living history actors that they, they got involved with this. The main area of salt production in Scotland is down around the Firth of Forth. And so they linked up with another local history group down there who came up from Kakenzie to do the demonstration of the salt pans and how they work. So basically what you do is you get loads and loads of seawater and you put it in a big iron pan and then you heat it up until the water evaporates and you're left with the salt. But you have to do it quite carefully, you have to maintain the temperature at a certain level all the time and it, it's really important to remove any impurities, so any little bits of seaweed, so little bits of stone, anything like that. So there's a whole process of how you do that where you have to put a coagulant into the water. And what they did in the living history demonstration is they used egg white. So you put egg whites into your salt water as it's burning and then the kind of white goes on the top of the water and you skim it off very carefully. 
in Jean Gordon's time, they also used ox blood. So they would put ox blood in the water and then the salter, the salter's job is to keep the temperature right and skim off all the impurities so you get pure white salt at the end. And it's, it's a very long process. It takes the whole day to do it. And it was just watching it actually being done. I love that kind of living history stuff. You know, when you go to the, the beach and you feel the salt and you get the salt in your hair and it's got that kind of salty tangle and you're just kind of, you're over this open pan all day and your skin and your hair feels really salty. And it's just, it's a very, very vivid recreation of what the past would have been like. And we don't know who the salters were. We don't know if Jean Gordon brought men in from other parts of Scotland who would have, men and women, who would have known how to work the industry or whether she trained up local people in Sutherland. There's a lot that we don't know about it, but there's, I've kind of been through historical documents and the Brora Salt Pans Research Group, they've combed through historical archives, trying to find as many references as possible. It's an absolutely fascinating piece of Highland history. It is. And do we know how successful it was? You know, she had these plans to make money from it and send her, her kids and grandkids abroad. But what were the actual results of the industry? Yes, it was successful. Yes, they made a profit. It kept running. It actually, the only reason it stopped seems to have been a dispute between her and her daughter-in-law. And there were various family things happening. Her, her son dies relatively early. And then this is the time when Jean remarries to her third husband as well. So there's various things going on, that external factors that make it stop. But it was a successful industry and the salt industry in Brora was revived a couple of times um, in the 18th century because it was so successful and they could produce salt so well. Yeah, her three sons go to university and travel on the continent. I, I must admit, part of the reason I was so fascinated with the salt panning is because I've seen the local history group in full historical costume getting excited about salt. And I just love that that was a direct impact of Jean Gordon introducing this industry to Brora. I think it's amazing. It's a really great community project. I've actually written an article which is just about the salt part of the story, which is in um, the current issue of History Scotland magazine, for anyone like me who is slowly becoming obsessed with salt. <laughs> but yeah, I, I actually, I even have here, I don't know if you can see it, this is a little tiny bottle of Brora sea salt, which oh, I got lovely. from there. Are you going to use it on very special occasions? <laughs> well, they, they did say maybe maybe don't eat too much of it. It's not it's not really approved for for consumption yet. <laughs> FDA approved. <laughs> yeah, I have tasted it. it. Tastes very salty. Oh, amazing! Thank you. This has been absolutely fascinating. I couldn't have asked for more incredible stories. Just for ending, are there any takeaway messages that we can learn from Jean Gordon's life? Anything from her history that can really inform or inspire us in the present day? I just wanted to know, it was originally, Jean Gordon is basically a footnote. I mean, she was literally a footnote in um, Antonia Fraser's classic biography of Mary Queen of Scots. There's a little footnote where it says, Jean Gordon ends up happy. She marries her, the man she truly loves. And I was like, I want to know more about that. 
and I just kind of followed the thread and I wanted to know more about where I live and where I'm from because people quite often come to the Highlands. I mean, I grew up in Culloden and people do come and tell me what Culloden is and they tell me what Highland history is about. They tell me what being a Highland woman is about. And I wanted to know myself. I wanted to look at the history and find out the facts for myself. And the stories are just so good. I wanted to share them. That is absolutely marvellous. I completely relate to this because I grew up in Nairn and I think Highland women often are a bit invisible in the history. I always think people have a very clear idea of what a Highland man is and he's like a kind of kilted clan chief. But then the Highland woman is just a puff of smoke and brigadoon. There does feel like there's so much of that history that still needs unravelled. And I think that Daughters of the North is such a brilliant contribution to this field, genuinely. So for anyone interested, it's being published on the 17th of March, so it's out very soon. It was such an incredible read and so detailed and just jam-packed with amazing history. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode and for all the support you've given us to make the show. Thank you to our patrons supporting us on Patreon, and a wee thanks as well to folks who have given us reviews or shared our content on social media. This is the last interview we'll have for a wee while, because we're returning to our usual format for the foreseeable future. Uh, we have some amazing episodes coming out very soon about some of my favourite places in Scotland. So please do stay tuned with us. Until next time, my friends, Slangeva. Slangeva.